this uncertainty seems to be the new normal that we're living in. It's going to remain like that going forward. We're not on track for net zero at the moment. We're working way too slowly on this globally. I don't know if you're familiar with what that looks like, what a world in 3.7 degrees looks like, but it isn't pretty. And we've got many customers in all sectors, from supermarkets to banks to large manufacturers who are taking significant action on their own to really advance and reduce their own emissions. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim McMahon-Smith, editor of The Energist, and today we'll be discussing the state of the market and the journey to net zero. I'm joined by EDF's Steve Parker. Hi, Tim. I'm Steve Parker. I work in the strategy and corporate affairs team at EDF UK, and I'm a sustainability manager. And Matt Nunn, also from EDF. Morning, Tim. My name is Matthew Nunn. I'm the director of EDF Business Solutions, and we're the largest supplier of energy to, to UK businesses. With Brexit, COVID-19 and the energy crisis, they've put people a bit in survival mode. It's taken the focus off net zero. I mean, how do we look to shift the focus back, Matt? I think you're right, Tim. I think it's been, you know, it's been a bit of a trilemma of crises. We've had a really difficult few years and clearly, you know, the political situation right now is possibly getting worse, not better globally. So things are very challenged for energy companies, for our customers and and for society at general. The focus has shifted for some companies in particular to survival. I mean, if you're paying three, four, five times your energy than you used to be, you're going to need to take some pretty significant action to reduce those costs and protect your business. But I think also it's it's important to remember that the climate crisis hasn't gone away. You know, over the past years and months, we've seen even more extreme weather events. Things are getting worse and action is is needed. And also the, the second point is one of the big issues we're facing right now, one of the reasons the UK was so badly affected by the energy crisis was our exposure to gas prices. You know, as a country, we still have a huge dependence on imported gas and therefore we're fully exposed to global markets. So investing in those low carbon technologies like nuclear and renewables and helping to break that long-term dependence on gas should protect us from future crises. So I think, yes, it's been difficult, but now is the time to shift our focus back to those net zero targets. Steve? Yes, and um, I, I was lucky enough to attend a, a, um, an event last week hosted by The Times, and um, it was shortly after the, the PM's uh, announcements on, on net zero or the rollback as people are are calling it and and, um, and and obviously you know it, it was such a uh, it, that was the main flavor of that event and we're all having to live with less i'm i'm living with less i'm sure everyone is and um we're living with this uncertainty or vuca as they as they call it but it, so it's hard to focus on anything but whether we've taken the foot off the gas i kind of i, I kind of agree and disagree the reason for that is I've, I've been around quite a long time and back around 2008 2009 when the financial crisis hit i was working at a financial service company and around then leading up to the Copenhagen um, conference of parties the the agenda was really really high you know everyone was talking about climate change you had double page spreads in all the newspapers and and obviously because of the financial crisis you know it really dropped off off a cliff at, at that point and I expected the same thing to happen with COVID and it, and it really hasn't and you know we, th- this uncertainty seems to be the new normal that we're living in it's going to remain like that going forward but I think there's glimmers of hope there that we that we can change. You know, the supply chains that we have upheld really well during COVID, and I think we can take comfort from that. And, and EDF, they do some perception surveys. Like all big companies, we 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 try to find out what what people think of EDF and what's going on. And um, we did that earlier this year. And I don't think there's any surprise that cost of living came in really high um, in terms of what's on people's mind. But closely after that were a range of issues, including the just transition and making the energy transition fair for all, energy security and, and alongside decarbonisation. So those things haven't gone away. 
And I think in, in the context that we're living in, it's still remarkably high on the on the agenda, actually. And for someone working in sustainability, it hasn't gone away. It, it seems to be gaining momentum all the time. So um, going back to the Prime Minister's announcements, um, there are lots of other issues that are becoming prominent. And those tend to be political. And we need to separate that political noise from what's actually going on and what the policy changes are. And keep going, really. Like, like Matt said, it's it's a significant material issue for a lot of people. And I think companies ignore it at their peril, really. But as you say, with this rollback and the fact that there's only 27 years till 2050, are you confident that net zero will be reached in the UK and it, even in a wider sense, the Paris Agreements worldwide? Yes. Uh, just to point out a few facts from some international institutions. So the, the World Resources Institute, they're really clear. We're not on track for net zero at the moment. We're, we're working way too slowly on this globally. And of course, emissions globally are still going up. With the UN, they do a lot of policy analysis. And with the current policies in place, we're currently looking at a 2.8 degree trajectory, not a 1.5 degree trajectory. And actually, some experts believe that by 2100, we're actually on a trajectory to up to a 3.7 degree, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with what that looks like, what a world in 3.7 degrees looks like, but it isn't pretty. But I don't think we can shy away that this is the biggest transition uh, in history. It's a fundamental shift to, to everything, not just to energy generation. It's everything we buy, everything we consume, everything in our daily lives. And it's going to be a huge change moving away from oil and gas to more to batteries and the type of materials we need. I was at, at this event last week. They, they were saying that we need 60 times the amount of lithium that's currently mined by, by 2050. And that's not the only mineral. Obviously, there's lots of rare minerals in places, you know, in places that we don't necessarily like doing business or it's, it's challenging. And so those other sustainability issues come into it. So we can't just focus on net zero and carbon and climate all the time. We have to think about those geopolitical issues and um, and broader sustainability issues that are out there. And the UK specific, because I know the Climate Change Committee has obviously berated the government for its progress on that. Uh, what do you think to the UK, you know, more UK specific? Well, I think the issues that we're, we're having and we're seeing being politicised um, a little bit are all to do with the crux of the issue. It has always been from the Stern report is this is capital intensive up front. So someone has to put some money up now and it, and it, and it is expensive in the short term, but the benefits long term and, and the financial incentive of doing that is, is the evidence is really strong. And I think um, they're saying if we delay a decade, it doubles the cost of doing it. For net zero in the UK, the technology is on track. And, and I know Matt will talk to, to some of the things that, that EDF offer um, customers, but particularly solar, batteries and EVs, you know, those can all help us move from from fuel, the fuel we use, we burn um, moving around. And in the UK, transportation is now the biggest chunk of emissions that we need to tackle. And that's why the PM's announcement on, on electric vehicles was so controversial and has caused such a stir. Because the sooner we act on that, the better. Everyone has said, you know, there's an urgency here and it's about ambition and leadership. And some people have, have, have said, actually, that the reasoning behind that is because of the cost and the impact on people. But some people are saying that that because of the delay to the second-hand car market, it's actually going to affect those in the UK who have less money than those that, that are richer. And um, with regarding individual companies, I mean, what are the first things that people should be looking at on their journey to net zero? Well, so there's, a, there's a lot you can do, of course. I mean, a lot of things are, like Stephen mentioned, driven by government incentives and government policy, and that's going to drive a lot of the technologies we need 
to invest in to achieve net zero, but companies can go beyond and really take action themselves. And we've got many customers in all sectors, from supermarkets to banks to large manufacturers who are taking significant action on their own to really advance and reduce their own emissions. They're doing things like entering into long-term corporate PPAs. We can talk about that later, I'm sure. They're installing on-site solar photovoltaics. They're installing electric vehicle charging for their customers, for their staff, for their own fleets. And they're making significant actions that do 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 have a really big dent in the in the emissions that they produce. But how do you break it down when it almost seems a lot of people seem to say you need to do everything, the solar, the PPAs, the flexibility, it almost can be too much. Where do, where do you actually start? Where would you suggest starting such a journey? It's a really good point. I think Stephen mentioned earlier, we live in this kind of very uncertain world. We're not really sure what's going to happen next. And therefore, if you run a business, and we we run a business at EDF, but if you run a business, it's quite hard these days to make a long-term plan with clear actions and stick to it. In the past, you might have had a strategy for 2050 and you'd draw a waterfall chart and some actions to get there and you just follow it meticulously. That doesn't really work anymore because there's various things, there's more things outside of our control than there has ever been. So I think setting a long-term target is is still critical. You know, setting a target for your business for 2030 and 2050 is really important to show that intent and then flexibly going with the opportunities that are suitable for your business. So for example, you've got a business with a big car park, EV charging might be a really good opportunity. For other businesses, solar panels could be a better opportunity at this point in time. So it's really about understanding your business and the specifics of that business and taking the right short and long-term actions for yourself. Talking about businesses, I mean, what's the appetite for decarbonizing across the customer base? You know, are there particular differences within certain sectors? So some are champions and leaders and others might be slightly laggards. I think it's probably less sector specific and more company specific. So we've got clients in almost every sector who are really, you know, pushing the boat and really, really taking uh, big steps towards net zero in the actions they're taking. And then we've got other clients in the same sectors who are not. So I think it's about the leadership of those companies. I think it's about having the incentives right and the strategy and the leadership there to make those big decisions and think a bit longer term. And Obviously, we were talking about the targets of you know, scope one, scope two emissions. A lot of time when we do surveys with the energists' readership, we find that one of people's biggest worries with regard to net zero is the scope three emissions. But isn't that putting the cart before the horse somewhat? Yeah, of course. I think we talk to a lot of clients. Their focus, of course, starts with scope one and scope two because it's, a, it's easier to understand and to measure and B, clearly easier to take action. Um, some companies are now getting to the point where they're looking at their scope three emissions. They're looking at solutions, uh, helping investing in their own supply chain, helping their supply chain partners to install certain low carbon technologies, possibly even financing them themselves. They're putting requirements on their supply chain. If you want to continue to supply us, you need to hit certain targets. But it is definitely more difficult. And it's usually what people focus on after they've tackled scope one and two. Do many companies do it themselves or do they have to get an expert in to do something as complex as scope through? Well, I think you need to understand all three scopes and that measurement and going back to your question about the journey, that measurement and identification and prioritisation of, 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 of what you want to get on with is, is important. But you need to identify the risks and opportunities across, um, across all three scopes. And um, quite often the, the, the quick wins, the low-hanging fruit is within scope one and scope two, but that's, that's not always the case. There's some, sometimes some really big um, impacts that you can make by influencing your supply chain or, or within within your scope three emissions. And um, for EDF now, we've made a huge impact reducing our scope one emissions. So uh, at the point of generation now, all of the energy we generate is zero carbon, and that's a major milestone we've hit this year. 
but now that that means that 99% of our UK emissions now are in scope 3 and the average tends to be around 70% so that's quite high for for, for a company and um, that's because of the, the 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 sale of gas that we have to customers and why we're campaigning for heat pumps to try and bring that down so it's the significant improvements to Britain's carbon footprint and, and carbon emissions from doing that. And obviously, we, we generate zero carbon electricity to fund those heat pumps. So it makes business sense for us to do that. Um, and you get that, that kind of big, bigger picture revolving. Another area where people want to finance the green revolution, they want to be part of it, is um, PPAs. A power purchase agreement has been around for quite a few years now, but um, people have found them too complicated, needing massive legal documents, and they're all bespoke and tailor-made. Uh, have you seen moves to productize it, to you know, make it a little more standardized so that it can broaden the appeal? Well, Tim, you've touched on my favourite topic of the moment. This is probably one of the only topics we discuss right now at work, so it's, it's clearly flavour of the month. Everyone would like a corporate PPA, so just... So everyone knows that's a, a long-term agreement between a generator and, and, and a corporate, often facilitated by a supplier like, like EDF, for example. We've seen increasing numbers of customers opt for corporate PPAs. We, we intend to sign at least four or five this month, and these are, these are big ones. So these are companies taking action, signing long-term 10 to 15-year agreements with, with generators. You're right, they are complex. The real winners at the moment are the lawyers. The lawyers are really enjoying this. I think there's a lot of complicated legal documents that interact with each other. Uh, and they're able, of course, to uh, to charge a lot of legal fees to produce those. But things things are getting better. Um, so more and more people, the suppliers, the off-takers, the customers, are understanding these risks. We're understanding the best way of putting these things together. And it is gradually getting simpler. Uh, it isn't going to happen overnight. You know, it's a new emerging market. And all new emerging markets need time to normalize and to settle on a standard. I think it's going to take a bit of time. So in essence, volume has lessened the risk. The fact that there's more out there. Absolutely. And just as more people that understand what's going on. You know, we were at the point a couple of years ago where there was maybe one or two people in the company that understood how to put these things together. That's clearly multiplied by, by a significant factor now. So we're getting more competent. We're, we're doing these things better. There will always be some kind of natural constraint because, of course, a generator is committing to sell power to a corporate for 10 to 15 years. He needs certainty that that corporate is going to take that power for 10 to 15 years. Otherwise, he hasn't got the, the certainty to make his investment. So that means you've got to have a lot of confidence in the credit rating and the sustainability of that corporate you're you're working with, yeah. So this will never be a sort of a golden goose, silver bullet type solution for every single business, um, but it will certainly be suitable for large companies. I mean, is there cases where someone you'd push someone towards on-site generation, or, or rather than PPAs, or, or they should do both? It just depends on the site-by-site basis, I suppose. Yeah, I think I think I think the reality is for many companies, on-site PV, on-site solar photovoltaics will be slightly easier. But for our biggest clients, you know, we work a lot with, uh, for example, Tesco, one of our big clients, their, their strategy is to, in, to install on-site solar photovoltaics and corporate PPAs as well. So they see, you know, a mix uh, of investments uh, as, as helping their business. And what's the journey in setting this up for people who aren't so au fait with corporate PPAs? I, th- I think you, you just need to work with your, your energy partner. So, you know, large companies like EDF, we buy energy from generators and we sell energy to corporates. So we're perfectly positioned to sit in the middle there and structure a corporate PPA. There is the need for a competent energy partner to help you put those things together. And with regard to the power produced, whether it's low carbon electricity from yourself or PPAs, there's obviously a Rego attached to that. Can you explain more about how the market's working in Rego's? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of talk, isn't there? A lot of buzz around around Rigos. I think maybe five years ago, Rigo was trading at about thirty pence a megawatt hour. And so, just to be clear, Rigo is a a guarantee of origin certificate that comes with renewable electricity when you buy it. Um, and I think in the most recent auction, they were trading it up to about twenty five pounds a megawatt hour. So from thirty pence to twenty five pounds a megawatt hour. Now that is a significant cost for a business. So if you're a business who's been buying renewable energy from your supplier and you were paying thirty pence for that certificate and you're now paying £25, that's a very substantial material increase in your cost. And I think you have to question what you're buying and the benefits that those Regos bring. So I think for a long time we have said there is a benefit in buying renewable energy from a supplier that comes with Regos. I think I think that that is true. You know, that money is going to the generators ultimately. So there is some kind of incentive and benefit to renewable generation. But I think things have to evolve. And I think Rigos are at the price now where people are starting to question, is this the right system? And of course, that has led to um, various pieces of work. So for example, Rigos and, and the rules around carbon reporting are governed by the greenhouse gas emissions reporting protocol. Uh, and there's lots of work ongoing now to consider how those standards are going to work going forward, which will affect how all corporates can uh, report their emissions, which could, of course, affect the demand for Rigos. I mean, is there danger, as some people worry about Rigos, with greenwashing, where they could be separated from the power they produce? Is that is that a worry in the market? I mean, it's 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 a it's a valid concern. I mean, ultimately, you're buying you're buying renewable power from existing renewable assets. You're not necessarily getting a new asset built. So, if you sign a corporate PPA, you're facilitating a generator building a new asset. If you buy a Rigo without a corporate PPA. You're, you're just buying a, a piece of paper from an existing asset, although arguably you are providing money to that generator to incentivize that investment to make more investments. So there is a benefit. But yeah, it's a, it's a valid debate. And I think the, the debate needs to continue. Yeah. And, and just, to, just to build on that, I've been in this sort of energy procurement and um, carbon offsetting game for, for a long time. And that was always the, the question around Rigos and, and renewable energy tariffs was, was are, are you providing that additionality to the UK UK mix and or are you just buying a certificate and, and, it, and getting those from you know from from Europe um, and I think the PPA so the PPAs make, make a huge difference for for clients that really want to show that they're um, you know helping out with the, with the renewable energy mix in the UK and particularly like companies that have big Energy demands, Tesco being being one of them, but data centers and 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 those sort of companies that have huge demand for energy for for a long time for that for all those servers. That's where it can be really really beneficial. Sorry to interrupt. I was just going to add that the other point is, you know, um, a couple of years ago, the main driver of a corporate PPA was the sustainability angle. People wanted to get new UK renewable generation built. Okay. That is still very, very, very true and very relevant. But of course, now, in addition, you know, our clients are looking for long-term price security. So we've gone through a period where wholesale prices rose from £50 to five, £600 a megawatt hour. And that hurts a lot of businesses. Of course, if you sign a 10-year fixed-price corporate PPA, you're guaranteeing to get your power for whatever that price might be for the next 10 to 15 years, insulating you from future shocks. So the sustainability angle is more relevant than ever. But the price security angle is now much more important. I mean, are customers now doing corporate PPAs and all these clever things in the sense that buying green, like it was 10, 15 years ago, sort of, they're beyond that now, would you say? It's just the simplicity of, I've done that and I'm on my way now. I think I think so. And, and also, there's, there's a whole wrath of, of different reporting and, and a lot more transparency these days around the claims that are being made. And 
This has been driven in Europe from on, around greenwashing as part of the circular economy package package over there. So you can see where that's coming through and and those advertising sort of um, rules that they're bringing in. But um, you know, I think the the focus in the past, which which people can't really hide behind anymore, is it, it's not just about buying that certificate and saying that all your energy is green. It's it's actually are you reducing? Are, are you becoming more efficient? Because that's uh, the other the other part of this is reducing the demand. And making sure that that's the best way to get to uh, reduce costs for the whole UK as well. Well, on that topic, I mean, how does EDF help with demand reduction? You know, energy efficiency projects. So we've um, we've got a subsidiary in the UK and internationally as well called Dalkia, um, and they work with businesses on energy efficiency projects. I mean, of course, it's everything from solar PV to heat pumps, but also projects to improve the fabric of buildings, building controls, and just reducing energy demand. So there's a a lot of options out there for customers. Do many of the firms that procure energy from EDF work with Dalkia? I mean, is it is it quite a highly integrated or? or... I'd, I'd say I'd say it's less it's less integrated in that way. You tend to find that corporate buyers. Um, some, sometimes we, we see a situation where there's somebody responsible for buying the energy and someone different responsible for buying energy efficiency services. I think that's possibly changing a little bit now. I think some of the companies are bringing these things together, but certainly in the past, it has been a little bit separate. I mean, do you as EDF work with customers uh, on their energy efficiency projects and plans? Because obviously it changes their, their profile, their demand profile. Yeah, we do. And it's um, it's becoming increasingly complicated as well. Because, for example, if someone installs uh, solar panels, um, that really affects the amount of energy they need to buy from the grid and the times they need to buy it. And it becomes a lot more unpredictable. So there's we're definitely seeing a real benefit with corporates who work with one energy partner to meet all of their needs because as these things become more complex and in- integrated and it's linked to flexibility and EVs and all those kind of things as well it can become very very confusing to have lots of different people playing with your assets and your demand and how is is there any solution to this is there a, a centralization that will make it all become clear I, I think working with a company who can help you to meet all of those needs is going to be beneficial and make your life simpler yeah and I, and I think just just to build on that more more broadly with um you know what's going on because I know Matt's focused on on business customers I think as, as issues in the UK like you would, we touched on before efficiency is right right up there because we have the worst housing stock in Europe um and that's why we use so much gas so a quarter of all UK lofts in the in the UK are uninsulated and people say that you could save up to 355 pounds a year by insulating your loft it's a bit like your head in in winter. A quarter of your your heat goes out, goes out through through your loft. And um, and I'm pleased to say, apart from the business side, EDS also a leader on the um, the eco scheme in the UK, which is uh, places an obligation on large suppliers like us to um, to promote energy efficiency for for vulnerable customers and help to reduce their bills. So we work with the government on 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 um, getting those schemes up and running, and and then going out and actually installing that insulation. Will the new world necessitate customers having to do a lot more flexibility, you know, with the amount of renewables on the grid? Yeah, I mean, I think it's inevitable, isn't it? I mean, there's some really obvious points there. You know, we're seeing we're seeing power prices within a day being extremely volatile. So you can have prices from minus something to plus something very significant. Now, in, in a market like that, being able to move your energy consumption around can yield very significant financial and carbon benefits as well. You know, if you take electric vehicles, for example, if the power price within a day can range from minus 100 to plus 100, if you can charge that vehicle when it's negative, you're, you're getting paid to charge your car. So we're not quite at that point yet where it's really obvious and the business case is really strong, but clearly we're headed in that direction. 
I mean, can you see it always being incentivized? I people who want to do it are incentivized and they do do it, or will it become so necessary it becomes mandated in some way? I think it will become obvious. I think the business case will be obvious and it will be automated. You know, there's already, so for example, EDF right now is working with some residential customers to automatically charge their cars at the right time. So charge their EV when the power price is low and and obviously not charge it when the price is high. So I think it will just become automated and just something natural that we do between energy suppliers and and customers. And they won't know anything about it necessarily, potentially. I think that's a possibility. I think some people would prefer just to let their supplier take care of it and maximise the value for them and reduce the carbon emissions. As long as, long as, as the car is ready to use, car is cares? ready. You know, if you've got yeah. eight hours in the night, if you're lucky, <laughs> if you've got eight hours in the night and you just need to charge your car for four, why do you really mind when, when your supplier charges that car if it, if it makes you money in the process? I mean, in the future, sort of looking towards the next 27 years, sort of to 20, out to 2050, um, how do you see the generation mix changing? Well, um. I'll go back to one of those international organisations and the, the IEA, every couple of years, they put out various scenarios out to 2050 and the report this year shows significant improvements on solar and batteries in particular. So two years ago, we needed 50% of innovation to come on these to achieve net zero by 2050 and, and that's now 35%. So within two years, you've seen a significant change there. By improvements, do you mean price reductions or, or technological improvements? Yeah, it's it's you know how much how much of the reductions need to come from innovation that will will drive down costs as as as, as innovation does, and they also said that fifty three percent of activities need to be electrified versus twenty percent um, internationally, and there needs to be five trillion globally invested every year to achieve it. I think we talked about earlier the the UK has done a lot on the uh, electricity generation reductions, and that's helped us achieve forty eight percent over the last thirty years. But we need 68%. So our national declaration uh, contribution, COP28, will be going back um, towards the end of the year. You know, we're not on track to, to meet that 68%. But the cost of wind and solar is coming down significantly. And then there's there's nuclear as well. And in all the government scenarios, nuclear provides that sort of base load of, of electricity that, that we need. Will nuclear remain the large behemoths like, you know, uh, Hinkley C? Or do you think these small reactors have a place as, as well? Well, I think so. And, and, and you know, the, the, the great... Uh, Great British Nuclear that's been set up. It's it's a great move that will will hopefully facilitate those things and and fusion as well. Um, so there's, I know we're not we're not part of the the, the activities going on in in Europe, but um, yeah, there's a, there's a there's a plan to try and get few on, on one of our old fossil sites actually, West Burden B. They're looking to try and try and put something on there, and I think the government hope that we'll have something uh, related to fusion by by 2040. But because of the war as well um, in, in Ukraine and the energy security issues that a lot of countries are facing, not, not just the UK, I mean, G- Germany's been really badly hit. There's a resurgence of, um, of nuclear power. I think there's 650 stations worldwide planned um, by, the, by the end of um, 2030, I think it is. With regarding the, the electricity generation mix, could you say what percentages sort of things would be at as a, as a rough, you know, 20% nuclear, this, that, like it is now? What would you say? I haven't got the numbers to hand, but the um, I think the percentage is around sort of 20, is it 24 gigawatts by 2050 is what the government are planning for, for nuclear. And, and that that is an increase, you know, because nuclear has... Uh, you know, a lot of their stations have come to the end of their life. So when with Hinkley Point, size or C, maybe other stations coming online and, and complemented by those um, smaller or mod- modular reactors, um, I th- it's still 
like I said, in, in all those scenarios, it has a, a big chunk of the baseload that's required to support renewables and batteries and storage um, in that And in, in 2050 itself, is intermittency entirely managed by flexibility and uh, without peaking plants is what I'm trying to say, carbon peaking gas peaking plants and you know, the, the storage element and and the batteries are, we we've got um a, a big battery facility that we've we've installed up in in Oxfordshire actually and we've got a, a a line there to a to a large EV charging station i think it's one of the one of the biggest there is and all all that does really is help the grid help out balance the grid grid and and gets paid for, paid for doing that but it it's uh it's going to be uh, going back to that flexibility and when we charge things <laughs> and how, how things work, things will change. And going back to the, the announcement from the Prime Minister and some of the political talk around these issues, it's, it, it is going to be a massive change for the country and, and you know, a lot more pylons. There's, there's going to be a huge change to the way things happen. And so like the planning system and bringing people along with us on that journey um, is, is going to be the big challenge, I think. Is a lot more pylons because of the decentralisation? Yes, just because of the changes needed for the grid um, and to get the, the the power from you know because wind 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 farms aren't necessarily near near where you need the um, you need the, the power. So, I mean, what tips would you give companies? You know that they should be looking at within the next five years, sort of a, you know short term. Where what should they? be doing i think i think a lot of them are already taking those actions tim and, and, and like you say i think within the next five years it's important to have a long-term goal but i think it's also important to have some some shorter term targets to show you're making a a meaningful difference i think the flavor of the moment as we said is corporate ppas if you are a large organization you can make a very meaningful contribution to tackling our climate change problem improving your own energy security with a corporate ppa so i would 100 percent recommend that for our for our larger clients, for all clients installing on-site photovoltaics, if you own the building, of course, if, you, if you're renting an office space and the landlord won't do it, it can be more difficult. But if you have the opportunity to install on-site solar photovoltaics, that's really useful. But then third, and, and very importantly as well, I'd suggest better understanding your energy and carbon consumption. So your energy consumption, sorry, and carbon emissions. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can install sub-metering. You can have a work with energy supplier to help map where you use energy and where you're emitting carbon. And then you can really focus on reducing those those uh, problems. And regarding the bit left over, the bit that buy from the grid, or maybe all of it, some of your customers, are there procurement strategies they should be taking in the current climate? It, it's hard to say because every company's got a different risk policy. Every company's got a different product, different revenues, different clients themselves. So, you know, if you work in a regulated business, securing your energy supplies long term might be a quite a good idea because you've got a regulated income. If you work in a market where you're competing against lots of players from other countries, you know, China, Far East, you might want a different strategy. Personally, I'd want a bit of security over my energy costs. I wouldn't necessarily want to be dependent on short-term markets anymore. I think we've had plenty of crises over the last few years. And we're probably going to have more. So I don't think personally as a, as a CEO of a business, I want to be exposed to that. I think entering into some agreements to stabilise your energy costs is probably uh, a must for many companies these days. I think all, all great points, Matt. And um, you know, within five years, in five years' time, we'll be getting pretty close to to twenty thirty, and um, looking to you know achieve that sixteen eight percent reduction relative to to nineteen ninety. So I think there'll be a, a lot more scrutiny. It will just it will get more on the radar for companies, and businesses tend to work in cycles, um, and they like round numbers. So you know, twenty twenty was the last sort of round number, and 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 obviously we had had the COVID um, crisis hit, and I think. 
that may have taken a, a lot of the the focus away from some companies that maybe didn't achieve targets that were coming to fruition at the time. And I don't think companies will will have that that same luxury when it comes to to uh, to 2025 and 2030. So the scrutiny will intensify and. I mentioned this sort of wrath of different reporting. So we've got TCFD, TNFD. I mean, you can just keep going, going on and on. And so there, there's not really any hiding anymore. It, I think it, so. So my tip really is, if, if you haven't started on this, is just to just to get going and start measuring it and start looking at um, setting that long term plan. And you know, from my experience as a sustainability professional, it, it really it's really important to get that senior engagement preferably if you know if you're in a big company a non-exec um as a sponsor and and supporting the supporting the journey and um and i'd say and i i think i mentioned this before just it's really important not to just focus on carbon it, it is you know really important that we crack on with it but um nature's the next big issue and it, and it's so interlinked with carbon uh, that it will it will come quickly. So TNFD is the Task Force for Nature-related financial-related disclosures, which is following on from the carbon-related TCFD. You know, there's a lot we can learn from the carbon agenda on nature, and I think it will move quickly. It's complex. There's a lot of data to sort of get your head around. And um, but the good news is that there's plenty of of help out there these days, and and obviously EDF are, are happy to help with them um, with customers as well. But um, it's it's a lot better than it was sort of five or ten years ago. Great. Thank you for a fascinating discussion. Thanks, Steve. Thanks very much. And thanks, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And of course, you know, if any of our, our listeners would like to learn more about this, you can, of course, look on the Talk Power section of EDF's website or follow us, EDF Business Solutions, on, on LinkedIn. And we'd be really happy to connect you to one of our, one of our experts to discuss the journey for your own, your own business. And for the latest news and views, go to theenergist.com. Join us next time. <laughs>